Good morning. Wow, that was, that, was, that was exhilarating, actually. Thank you. Thank you for coming open-hearted and, and unashamed to worship Jesus. I'd like you to open your Bibles in 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. And before we look into the Bible, I want to thank you so much for your encouragement. Uh, regarding last week's teaching, uh, thank you even more that you listen uh, so carefully and try to see in the Bible whether it's true or not and try to live out what God shows you there. That is incredibly encouraging as, as a fellow Christian and as your pastor, so thank you very much. There is a, a question buzzing because of the the rapid change and decay and destruction, not only in our own culture, but across the whole world. There's a question that I'm continuously asked, and that question is this. Are these the last days? What do you think? First service was a little clearer in their answer. There was, <laughs> they practically shouted, yes! And my question to you would be, well, how do you, how do you know? And are you sure? Your news feed is absolutely packed with two kinds of things, trivial, stupid things, and heartbreaking things. I couldn't help. I looked at the news, my mistake, and, and one of the things that was trending is that someone wore a swimsuit somewhere. Seriously, that was, the, that was the hashtag. I don't even know who it was, but somebody wore a swimsuit, and it must have been some kind of swimsuit because it's in the news. And then on the other hand, you've got public executions in a place that once featured the arts. Horrible atrocities. And not just on a global scale, on a local scale, right across the street. Heroin addiction is skyrocketing in America, they say. Heroin addiction. Hard to come back from that if you ever get hooked. We're putting ministries in place to help whatever you're trapped in. That's on the way. But everywhere you look, my point is, everywhere you look, it just seems like a steady stream of alarming news. If you frequent certain blogs like the Drudge Report, and I know that some of you do, because I get emails, have you seen this? And it's, it's the end, right? <laughs> this headline right here says it's the end. Well, we seem to be in agreement that, that we're in certainly difficult times, if not the final times, but how would we know? May I tell you clearly from Scripture that the Bible gives very clear direction on this issue? You don't need the cover of the LA Times to answer that question. You see, God who spoke time and space and matter into existence does not work as I often do, and you saw it this morning, in our announcements, I, don't, I work on a contingency plan, but God never does. God always knows what He's doing. He's never gone with plan B. I continually ask myself, well, that didn't work. What should I do now? God has never been in that situation. He is the author of history. In a time of His own choosing, for His own glory, God began to speak the world into existence, and He has been conducting its business 
ever since from that time to this, and that great big Bible that may be on your lap or maybe in a seat near you if you need one, help yourself to one of ours, tells you the unfolding of what God has done in history. He created the world. He reached down into a world that very quickly abandoned him and wrecked itself in sin into the life of one man, promised Abraham, you will be the one who brings the Savior into the world from your tribe. All the tribes will be blessed. And the nation that Abraham began, the Israelites, most of the Bible tells you they're up and down, tragic, comic, sometimes glorious, but generally sad story. One failure after another until in the fullness of time, the Bible says, at God's choosing, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, to keep the law and to save us. That's your New Testament. And that gospel, because of God orchestrating history, raced around the known world at the time in one single language, and at that unique time in history, everybody for the first time in human history could read the Hebrew Scriptures in that corner of the world in their own language, in Greek. And the gospel raced everywhere and changed the face of human history. Why am I telling you all this? From the time Jesus rose again and returned telling us first to spend the rest of our lives making disciples. From the time Jesus left here, that began the end days. That began the last times. We're living in the final movement of history. You can span thousands of years of history and see historically proven by archaeology and history and literature That what the Bible tells you is true, and this is what God has been up to, but now you have the rare privilege of living in final urgent days. What are you to do about it? Well, again, the Bible is crystal clear. And if you want to read a single book of the Bible, if you're troubled by what's going on in our society, probably the best book I could recommend to you to read over and over again is not a bestseller. It wasn't written in the last six months. It's not going viral on YouTube. It's the book of First Peter. I read it twice in the last two days. It took me about 12 minutes. It is a short letter, and here's why it matters. It was written by an eyewitness of the life of Jesus to people who knew they were in trouble, who were being persecuted by, for their Christian faith. Peter describes the trouble that they're in as a fiery trial that has engulfed them. So, let me quickly run through the book and tell you where we're headed, a single verse of Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he tells them how to live in these difficult days. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? Get your mind right and don't be distracted by what's happening around you. Set your hope on the return of Jesus. Verse 18 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What does that mean? If you're in God's family, if you have the amazing privilege of closing your eyes in prayer and addressing God as your father, and you know that that's true, it's because of this. Jesus bought you out of the slavery and the servitude of sin with his own blood. That's what Peter's saying. 
There was no earthly treasure. There was no amount of money on earth that could set you free from sin. Only God's son that he sent at the time of his choosing could do that for you. That's your identity. And Peter spends one whole chapter reminding suffering Christians who are going to be engulfed in terrible trouble before their times are over. Nero is going to appear, for instance, and light his gardens with the flaming bodies of Christians. That's going to be part of the life experience, perhaps, of some of the readers of this letter and certainly of those who live shortly thereafter them. What do we do? Well, in chapter 2, he begins to tell them how to live then as a holy people. In the second half of the chapter, he tells them surprisingly to go ahead and submit to the government that God has established in their day. In chapter 3, he speaks to husbands and wives and tells husbands and wives, in this, in the middle of this suffering, don't forget the way you treat each other in marriage. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, he tells them explicitly about suffering and how to bear through it. And in chapter 4 and 5, he addresses them now as a group of believers, as churches with pastors. And he says, here's how you are to relate to each other. Pastors, here's your job. Believers, here's your job. All of you submit to one another in humility. That's the book of 1 Peter. A book written in the midst of suffering to suffering people to tell them how to live in the last days. And I know we're in the last days because of the single verse I want to explain to you today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Now, if you can, don't read the whole verse. Just read it line by line with me, okay? Keep your eyes up on that top line. The end of all things is at hand. That's clear, isn't it? We are living in the last movement of history. Peter says we're living with urgency, and this suffering means that we're living in the end of all things. It's at hand. It's imminent. It might happen now. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. That's really good advice in difficult times. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, because the end of all things is at hand, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Those are overlapping words that essentially mean keep your wits about you. Keep sound judgment. Keep a hold of yourself. Get a grip and keep a grip on yourself. And then the last part of the verse, which you've already read because it's impossible to do what I said and just read half at a time. <laughs> That's actually where the twist is. Based on the conversations I've been having with Christians, and maybe you have too, think about how you, if you hadn't read what the Bible says, might finish that sentence. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. And how would you finish it? Some people would say, buy gold. <laughs> I had a friend tell me, I'm getting off the grid. I've known people who have moved to Idaho. The end of all things is at hand. I'm moving to Idaho. <laughs> all right. The end of all things is at hand. I'm cashing out. The end of all things is at hand. I'm buying guns. These are all real conversations I've had with real people. Buying guns, buying gold, moving to Idaho. A friend of mine said, Idaho won't be far enough. He's going to Brazil. Not sure what he thinks he's going to find in Brazil, but 
Look what this says. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for one reason. Keep your wits about you. Keep your mind clear. Keep your judgment clear. Keep control of your emotions and your thoughts. Be clear-headed, sober-minded. Be serious for one reason. What is it? To pray. We didn't see that one coming, did we? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded so you can lawyer up properly. That's a much more American verse. There, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded so you can look out for your own rights. It's not what Peter said. Now, he's going to say much more. In the next two weeks, I'm going to explain to you in the rest of this paragraph the other things that are connected to prayer that he told Christians they should be doing at the time when it can be described as the end of all things, the final movement in history. But what he said to do is to be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you could pray. And if you experienced any disappointment in getting to the end of the verse... And you thought to yourself, well, really, that's, that's it? That doesn't sound like much. How's that going to help? May I gently suggest that we, if we find ourselves in that mindset, know little of the power of prayer? Peter said it was so important in times of suffering to maintain self-control and sober thinking so that For the sake of, the Greek is really clear. Some translations make it more conversational, but they miss the point. What Peter is saying is calm down, not so that you can fight back. Calm down so that you can think to pray. Makes all the difference in the world. They were distracted from their prayers by suffering. Suffering sometimes can make you forget to pray. You're so overwhelmed, so shocked, so surprised, you're in such deep trouble that you get busy or you simply collapse and you forget to pray. They, in their day, in this time, these persecuted Christians were apparently at risk of forgetting the privilege that they had in prayer. So Peter says, calm down so you can pray well. We're really not kept from prayer by suffering. They were distracted by prayer from, the, from prayer by suffering. What are we distracted from prayer by? Let's talk a little bit. Yes. The internet, the TV, it's amazing. In two services, the first two answers that came back straight out of the heart, internet and TV. You're right. They were pulled away from prayer by suffering. We're pulled away from prayer by entertainment and hyper-connectedness. Did you know now, at this point, the majority of smartphone users, I believe, use their smartphone in, the, in each new day before they actually get out of bed? Turn yourself in. Don't, don't shake your head. <laughs> yes, me too. That's not a small thing. What happens there? You get an email. You see a headline. You get a text. You get pulled into the urgency of the day. Your fight or flight, let's get going, let's make something happen. Impulse is activated. And you run straight into your day, and what the Bible says are the end of all things, without ever talking to the greatest person in the universe. Listen, there's nothing I know 
that I could speak of in church that more quickly arouses feelings of weakness and self-accusation and guilt than prayer. Hear me say this, please. That is not the intention of Scripture, and it is certainly not my intention. But if we don't understand why this verse was written so clearly, calm down so that you can pray, we don't know the urgency, the importance, the blessing, the privilege, the real help, the genuine strength that comes from prayer. I was reading a pilot's memoir, and he said that when he met his flight instructor, he was a little put off because she looked like Granny Clampett. Some of you get that reference. Some of you will have to look it up. Not right now. He thought, what, what could Granny Clampett teach me about flight? Well, as it turns out, a great deal. She had been flying a very long time. And there's a lot to know and there's a lot to think about and there's a lot to do when you're flying a plane by yourself. But in all of her instruction, she said this, and it stuck with him, and that's the article he wrote. He said, first, fly the plane. No matter what else happens, if you're out of fuel, you know what you should do first? Fly the plane. What if there's mechanical failure? What should you do then? Fly the plane. If you get lost and perhaps wander into a place of military operations and you suddenly find that you have some of America's finest as company on your wing <laughs> glaring at you and pointing to the weapons they carry on those amazing airplanes, what should you do in that situation? You have to keep flying the plane because if you get so consumed by the lack of fuel or being lost or the jet fighter next to you, if you forget how to fly the plane, you forget to fly the plane, you're dead. That's what Peter's saying here. You are engulfed by trial. Peter says, don't be surprised by the fiery trial that is among you. These sufferings are being accomplished in your brothers around the world. But he said, literally, don't be surprised by the burning. If it feels like your lives are on fire, don't be surprised. That's your lot in life. You're living in the end times. You're living in a time of persecution. What should you do? First, you should calm down enough so that you can pray. And I say to myself, honestly, if I'm looking at that single verse, I thought to myself, is that really enough to preach on a Sunday? I shared the same concept years ago. Is it worth delivering that single simple idea? Yes. What happens when you pray? The reason I walked you quickly through the entire book is Peter says, and he begins with their identity because he says, you belong to God. God wanted you back in his family and out of the slavery of sin so deeply that he gave his son as a lamb offered up for slaughter before the foundation of the world. All the treasures of the world he made were not enough to bring you back, so he gave himself in the person of Jesus Christ. You belong to him now. Paul later will say, you have the Holy Spirit as a seal upon your life until the time that God redeems you, brings you in completely. What does that mean? It means you belong to him. In other words, when you pray, you who don't know how to pray, you who feel terrible about your prayers, you who get so easily distracted in prayer, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, God is your father, Jesus is your brother, he's not ashamed to call you, you're his brother, his sister, 
You're in the family. You speak, and the God of the universe gets this. Get this he listens, and he loves you. And the one who is conducting history knows what is best for you, and he knows what comes next for you. He knows everything about it. And the way to speak to him is one single thing that he has provided. That is prayer. He speaks to you through his word, which is illumined and applied to your heart by the Holy Spirit, who reminds you of everything that Jesus has taught you. But the way you get to talk back, think about that, is prayer. I mean, if you had access to your favorite person in the whole wide world, in your field, your job, the person you admire most, if you had his cell phone number and you knew that he wanted you to call, would you? Yes. We're so celebrity struck, we take pictures of ourselves standing next to celebrities that don't know us, who don't know we're even standing there, and we put it on Instagram saying, look, I'm close to him. What a concept. I'm in the physical proximity of somebody who doesn't know me, but look, he's important and I'm right here. <laughs> Ah, that's fun. I've done that too. Craned my neck into the shot for someone famous. <laughs> but you know who's waiting to listen? The God who spoke time into beginning. The one who is conducting history for his glory. The one who looked across history and saw you lost in sin, headed certainly to death and hell without him, and gave his son to stand between you and his judgment so that you would never face him as someone who is guilty, but that you would face him only as his beloved child. That's why he not only welcomes and invites you, he actually tells you to talk to him. It's amazing. You say, Well, I, I get distracted. And I feel bad and I stop praying. Ever, anybody ever felt that way? That's the single idea. The single idea of this verse is to fly the plane. To keep your wits about you, stay calm, and remember in suffering and in distraction to remember to pray. Let me be practical and try to apply that as specifically and easily as I personally can from what little I've learned, and I'll be done. Here's how my prayer life goes. Every once in a while, I'll actually settle down enough mentally and emotionally, and I feel like I'm talking to God. And I know he's listening. Maybe I have my Bible open, and I'm reading through Scripture, and he shows me what he wrote down, a great promise he's made him. He's made to me, so I'll stop and thank him. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me so much that you gave yourself, because money enough could never save me. Or I'll read something that he's told me to do and I've failed to do, and I'll feel that hurt of conviction, not to give up and quit, but to come back and ask him to forgive me. And then I'll be reminded maybe of all the things that I have to be grateful for, and I'm talking to him about it, and maybe some of you come to mind, and I'm praying for you, and then I remember that we need half and half. Everybody, anybody ever been there? Well, what do you do with that? Here's what I do. Because I'm speaking to a real person, I'm speaking to someone who knows and listens and understands. I'll stop and I'll say, Father, I am so sorry. I'm distracted again. You know how I am. And I'm sorry. But if you'll give me just a second, and I'll write it down on a little legal pad I keep next to my Bible. That way I don't have to talk to him and try to remember at the same time about the half and half.
It's done. It's over. It's settled. And we get back to talking. And sometimes that can go on for a few minutes. Sometimes it goes on for longer. Sometimes it's just quick and brief. Sometimes it's at a stoplight. We're told to pray at all times. What's the point? You have to pray. You have to talk to him. He has made extraordinarily, incredibly, indescribably powerful resources, meaning himself available to you if you will speak to him. So speak to him. Here's a simple way to do it. I learned from a pastor named John Piper through one of his books. Piper says he prays in expanding circles. And you can learn this in 30 seconds. In my expanding prayer circle, and I don't always pray this way because it's a relationship, it varies. It's not a checklist that I'm working my way down. I'll start with the smallest circle, which is me. And I'll read a little bit of Scripture, and God will open up my mind sometimes with just a short reading of how I've failed Him. I'll be reminded of His grace, and I'll ask Him for it, rest in it for a little bit. Pray for my work. Pray for my own thoughts. Pray for the things that are troubling or concerning or desirable to me. Then I move that circle out a little bit. Who's next in my immediate circle? My wife and kids. They're literally the closest to me. They're still all at home. A lot to pray for there. And I don't think about remembering every single thing. I just talk to him. Let him guide. Let him lead. We're in conversation, alternating between prayer and Bible reading as he brings certain things to mind. And his half and half and rat traps and gasoline and don't forget to change the oil. As those things interrupt me, I apologize with no guilt and shame. Try to refocus. I'm having a conversation. I got distracted. I'm sorry, but I still want to hear from you and I still want to talk to you. Then I move the circle out a little bit further from my own family. Guess who's in the next circle? Well, you are. Now, not all of you at once. I'm not nearly that sharp. I can't think of all of you at once. But I've got a small group, and I've got some friends, and I know some people who are in dire, dire need. I know people here who are dying of cancer. I know guys who are looking for jobs. Sometimes with the list, sometimes just as God brings things to mind, again, it's a relationship. It's not a box that I'm checking. I'll pray through that circle. Then I'll move past our church to our state and our country. Then I'll move out to the bigger circle of our missionaries going out into the world, the things that horrify me that I see on the news. Do I do every single bit of this every single time? Of course not. It's a personal relationship, but what's the point? He wants to hear from you, and amazingly, he stands ready because he is eternal God to give you, astonishingly, his undivided attention anytime you speak to him. It's an extraordinary privilege. It's the greatest thing he ever could have done for us. That's why Paul writes the Romans and he says, I beseech you. I want you to see this. Look how much prayer meant to Paul. Romans 15.30, please. This is the Apostle Paul, someone who knew Jesus perhaps better than any other Christian disciple who's ever lived. Here's how much prayer meant to Paul. Romans 15, verse 30. 
He said, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Did you notice he's laying it on kind of thick? I appeal to you by our friendship. No, much bigger than that. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me, how? In your prayers to God on my behalf. Strive means fight. The Greek word underneath that has the word agony wrapped up in the middle of it. I want you to join the fight. How are you going to do that? You're in Rome. All I ask is that you pray to God for me. That's how much prayer matters. So no guilt, no shame. Just fly the plane. Put down the phone. Forget your distractions. Forget your suffering. Calm down. Keep self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Enough so that you can pray. It's the greatest privilege you've ever been offered. How does God feel when we pray? Listen, this, this, the the good news of this is so extraordinary that we're tempted to think that when pastors talk about it as plainly and as practically as I am, that they're making stuff up or being too hyperbolic or being too sentimental. And I'm not. You're his beloved child. Isaiah says that the way God feels about people that belong to him is he has graven us into his hands. Isaiah says that when Jesus was dying on the cross, 700 years before it happened, Jesus endured the shame of the cross because he was looking ahead to the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? Gathering up God's family. Gathering up his children. Jesus said, you must be born again. And those born into God's family have the astonishing privilege, not the duty, the privilege of speaking to their father. And if you're a dad, you know what a great privilege that is. See, my kids, forgive me kids, I'll speak about you just briefly. I'll make it up to you financially if that's what it takes. <laughs> See, my kids are teenagers now, and, and they're cool, and I'm not. <laughs> and that's not sarcasm. They, they really are cool kids, and I'm not cool anymore. I used to be, but I had them, and that's the way that works. The arrival of kids just knocks the coolness right out of you. They once questioned that I had ever been cool, and I reminded them I was cool enough to find your mom, and that's why you're here, so I, you know, at least at one time, there must have been a moment of coolness. But they're old enough now to have minds, thoughts of their own, schedules of their own. They're driving tell you one of the great joys of my life. But I'm sitting in the living room and they both come in and they plop down and say, hey dad. And it dawns on me that they're not going to watch TV. They just want to hang out. Right in the fields. They want to be with me. They want to talk to me. They want to hear what I have to say. There's no greater joy. It's not for nothing that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father. He wants to hear from you. He's not the abusive dad that walked out on you. He's not an imperfect, messed up dad who ignores you. He is a dad who loves you perfectly and dearly wants to hear from you. 
and you're so distracted, and I'm so distracted, and there's so many things calling out for my attention. My natural impulse is to do this. Don't just stand there. Do something. So I'll race out and get busy and sprinkle maybe a little bit of prayer on my plans and my efforts and get completely wrecked by my own plans and then limp back and talk to him about it. The final practical thing I could tell you so that you can be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers is not to live your day in reverse. And what I mean by that is to learn from Jesus how to pray. It's the only thing his disciples ever specifically asked him to teach them. They came to him one day and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. They saw something in his prayer life that compelled them to ask, we have to know what you do and how you do it. So he taught them what we call the Lord's Prayer. But in the actual practice of the prayer of Jesus, here's how it worked. Jesus went first to his Father. If you read through his life, he went to the Father early and he went to the Father late. He was continually in prayer to his Father. In Mark chapter 1, in fact, we're told that he had an extraordinary day of ministry. He healed everyone who was sick and had demons. And he got up a great while before dark and was spending time with his father. His disciples came and said, let's get back to it. There's a lot of people waiting. There's still big needs out there. They really want to hear from you. And Jesus said, no. I've been sent forth to preach the gospel in the other towns too. And he left. How did he know to do that? Because Jesus started with his father. And he, he was reminded in his humanity of his identity, his purpose. He gained his strength and his direction by meeting with the Father first. Then he went with the disciples and he taught them. And then they went out together to the crowds. And amazing things happened. That's living the day forward. How do we normally do it? I'll speak only of myself. Here's how I do it. I get up, check my email, look at the news, think about the plan, check my to-do list, and race out into the day when I'm not walking with God. I'll run out to the crowd and the work first, get my head kicked in by circumstance, failure, weakness, and every ugly other thing that awaits me at when the end of all things is at hand, and then I'll limp back to my fellow disciples, and I'll tell Jim, boy, that didn't work. What do you think we should do now? And when I find out that Jim doesn't know either, and that no matter who I ask, nobody can tell me, and I've sought all the encouragement and all the wisdom from all the books, maybe an old seminary professor and my pastor friend in Texas, when I can't still arrive at peace, at fruitfulness, then I'll limp from the disciples, my fellow disciples, I'll limp back to God and say, God, I'm sorry. And I'll hear from him. What have I done? I've lived my day backwards. Take a cue from Jesus. Start earlier first. As early as you can pay attention, start with God. John Bunyan said, the man who runs from God in the morning will scarcely find him the rest of the day. Not because he's not available, not because he doesn't want to hear from you, but because you've already set your mind out there without talking to him, you'll find it hard to get your mind back to him. What is Peter saying? Read that with me. You'll almost have it by heart. The Bible says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. What am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you this simple idea. Take this with you and live your week forward. Keep calm and pray on. That's all Peter's saying. Don't freak out. 
Be self-controlled and sober-minded for this reason, so that you can pray. Keep calm. Pray on. Let's pray right now. It would be a, a terrible irony and a defeat if I spoke this long about prayer and we didn't pray. So let's pray. If you're not quite sure how to pray, just start the way I suggested. Start with those expanding circles and just stop wherever, wherever you like, wherever God leads you. Start with yourself and move outward. Father, what an immense privilege we have to call you just that, our Father. A lot of messed up dads like me in the world fail their kids, don't listen very well. You're the perfect father. You're the father we need, the father we dreamed of. And your word is true. So when I speak out loud in front of a bunch of people and address you in the name of Jesus, you listen and you care. And you don't always do what I ask because you know what's best, but thank you for listening. And would you take every single disciple here and just remind them, even today, before they go to bed, to begin again with you, to hear from you, to speak to you, to resist distraction and disorientation, to be self-controlled and sober-minded, to keep calm so that they could pray. Help us, Lord, tomorrow to live our day forward, beginning with you and walking with you throughout the day, hearing your voice, speaking to you. Thank you, Lord, that your grace covers our misunderstandings and our, our foolishness, our distraction. Your grace covers that, and you welcome us into this perfect family relationship with all of our needs, all of our fears. So we pray, God, that we would begin again and we would do exactly what you say we would be self-controlled and sober-minded in this last movement of history so that we could pray. And listen, church, if you're here for the first time, you're seeking God, you're not sure that Jesus is your Savior, the first and the only prayer that God wants and can hear from you is you saying, God, forgive me for my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my sin. I'm sorry for it. Make me one of your family. Save me. Maybe God's been drawing you to that for a long time. You've been putting him off. He is eagerly waiting to hear your repentance and your trust in him to save you. If you do that this morning, I kindly ask you, let us know on a connection card. If you have prayer requests that you want the church family to rally around, let us know. But most of all, make sure that you pray. Father, we conclude our service with giving, worshiping you, Lord, through the careful, sometimes painful discipline of taking from what you've prospered us with and giving it to you so that this good name and your good gospel can be shared all around the world. We give it and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you give, church.
thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.